But yeah, so what, what I've decided to preach on uh, this evening is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Very uh, simple, uh, well-known verses to us as we think about uh, our life together as the church, uh, as we think about the Christian life and corporate worship, uh, we are called to be living sacrifices. Um, somebody asked me to preach on this. I won't tell you what their name is, but they are married to my dad. Um, and we will just study this passage together tonight, and I just hope you're encouraged by this. Uh, this is something I've, I've preached in the past, uh, and I hope it's a blessing to you. Let me read it. It's just the two short verses, Romans ch- chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and they say this, and I'm sorry, I'm not sure what version you use. I have the ESV, um, and it says this. I actually have an NASB, but Romans 12 is ripped out of it. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm glad I didn't just grab it. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that, what is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Father God, holy God, we come before you this evening, and we are thankful for your abundant grace and amazing mercy in our lives. Lord, we confess together that we are all sinners, that we stand before you guilty, because we have fallen short of your glory, of your standard of perfection, and we have broken your law. Uh, we confess that we stand before you guilty and deserving of your wrath for all of eternity, because you are holy, holy, holy. But God, we, are also, we also confess together that we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, and we are thankful that you sent him Uh, to suffer and die in our place. We're thankful that he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, that he died a sin-bearing death in our place as our substitute, taking away all of our guilt and shame, bearing our sin, bearing the wrath that we deserved. We're thankful that he rose again victoriously, conquering sin and death and the enemy. And we're thankful that that changes our lives. We're thankful that you chose us before the foundation of the world and that your Holy Spirit has applied the work of Christ to our lives so that we might have real hope and real joy and faith in this life. So, Father, it's a joy, it's a privilege to gather together with your people, these dear friends of mine um, at this church, to worship you, to hear from your word. Lord, I pray for this church, that you just continue to bless them, Thank you for their faithfulness over the years. Thank you for Gabe and the other elders and their faithfulness to lead this church, to be a church that holds your word front and center and believes that your word has the power to form our lives and to conform us into the image of your son. And Father, I pray that you just continue to bless them in years to come. And I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I was familiar with nursery rhymes and fairy tale stories and all those things. And there was one uh, that always stood out to me that didn't really make much sense. It was the one of the prince and the pauper. You guys remember that one? Uh, There was Prince Edward uh, and then a a poor boy named Tom. And uh, they realized that they actually looked alike. They were doppelgangers. 
Uh, and they decided that they would exchange identities and exchange their clothes and their roles because they were each discontent with their lives and envious of one another. Um, now, this was always really baffling for me to understand and hard for me to relate to because I always thought if I was a royal prince uh, living a luxurious life in a palace uh, and enjoying all of those, that position and all of those benefits of royalty and I looked over my castle wall and I saw all the peasants and paupers below, I don't think I would really be envious of them. And the more I've thought about this story, I've thought this story is so unrealistic. How is it possible that, and I know it's a fairy tale, but at the same time, I'm just reminded, the more I thought about it, that this prince never actually lived as a pauper. Um, and, and, and as I apply this story to our spiritual life, I'm reminded that we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. You and I, if you are a believer this evening, if you've placed your hope and trust in him, First uh, Peter chapter 2 Verses 9 through 10 reminds us that we are the royal sons. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You and I are God's spiritual children. We are his royal sons and daughters of the Most High, and we have received mercy. And I'm reminded, we would never be like this prince and look out at the world and want to be like them because we were like them at one point. And we don't ever want to go back. We have experienced the the tragedy and the misery and the suffering of life without Christ. We are a people who have received mercy. That's how Paul starts off. I appeal to you. What does he appeal to? How does he appeal to us? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And if you know Romans, and I know you know Romans well, because I believe Gabe's preached through Romans. Have you not? He has a while ago. Um, I think I might have been here for some of that. I'm not sure. Um, But if you know Romans, you know that Romans 1 through 12, sorry, 1 through 11 is all doctrine. That's why Paul uh, begins chapter 12 with a therefore. He's looking back on everything that he stated before. And chapters 1 through 11, it's all doctrine. And now moving forward, it's all about our duty. Chapters 1 through 11 are all theology. And moving forward, it becomes very practical. And he appeals to us by the mercies of God. And I just want to remind you of the context of where we've come from up to this point in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, 16, and 17. You have received the power of God to salvation. That's a mercy of God. Chapter 3, 24 to 25. You have been justified as a gift by his grace, even though you are guilty, even though you are a sinner. You have been declared righteous in his sight. Chapter 5, verse 8, another mercy. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 6, 4, we have actually been buried with Christ in his death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. Chapter 8, verses 1, reminds us of another mercy of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We do not have to stand in fear of condemnation. The wrath that we deserved was poured out on his son. 
Chapter 8, 15 to 17 also reminds us that we are children. We are God's children, his royal sons and daughters, through adoption. And of course, Romans 8, 35, we all love this verse. We're reminded of this mercy, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. There's nothing in this life, not even death itself, can rob us of the eternal life that we have this newfound eternal life that we have in Christ. So Paul appeals to them according to the mercies of God, and he appeals to them. He begs with them. He pleads with them to be who they are. Because love so amazing, love so divine, demands your soul, your life, your all. What Paul is about to call us to, what Paul is about to urge us to, what Paul is about to demand upon us, is such a natural, rational response to the mercy that we have already received through his Son. So the first thing that we see in this text, in verse 1, is that our worship has a distinct shape to it. Our worship has a distinct shape. Verse 1 says this, I'll read the whole thing. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, shapes are things that are uh, important. They're an important part of our life. When we are young, we begin, we are taught and we begin to recognize shapes. You remember the toys that you have with the the block and the toys and the the blocks go in the, the the shaped holes. Toddlers read books and play with toys that force them to recognize certain shapes. Recognizing some shapes is more automatic for us than other ones. Maybe we recognize a circle, a square, and a triangle, and an octagon quickly, but maybe we don't recognize things like rhombuses and hexagons. I know I've been helping my kids with their math homework lately, and I struggle to remember all of the different shapes and the angles and the algebra, or is it geometry? It's it's been too long. But we all recognize shapes, But when we think of Christian worship, the shape that Paul wants us to think of is the cross. The shape of our worship is cruciform. Worship is self-sacrifice patterned after the cross of Christ. Again, when Christ calls us to himself, he bids us to come and die. When Christ calls us to himself, he bids us to follow in the footsteps of our Savior and to die. This is made clear by the first thing that Paul says. We are called to, Paul urges us, appeals to us to present our bodies as at first a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. If you know anything, and I assume that you do, about your Bibles and what sacrifice is, you, it's from the beginning of the story. My family read Genesis 3 the other night for family devotions. I explained to them that after the fall, the first sacrifice happened. They deserved to die. But in their place, God had mercy on them, and he sacrificed an animal. He shed the blood of an animal, and he used the skin from the body of that dead animal to cover up their nakedness and shame. And ever since that moment, moving forward, it was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for sins until the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. But here, Paul calls us 
us Christians, we as a, the corporate body of Christ, to live a life of sacrifice, to be a living sacrifice. This is a paradox. Sacrifice is all about the shedding of blood and of real death. How can you be a sacrifice and be alive? It seems like they are completely antithetical to one another. But of course we know, because of the gospel, because of the story, that resurrection is now closely tied to death because Jesus was our sacrifice, but he was risen from the dead in a supernatural way. He was risen from the dead. God raised him from the dead, and he is our sacrifice, but he is alive. And in the same way, when you come to Christ, you die. And your life is a living sacrifice, but at the same time, you are alive in Christ. We die with Christ. We live with Christ. Is that not what the symbolism of baptism represents? We are buried with him in baptism, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We are all living sacrifices. That's how we are to live our lives in in Christ. We are to die to ourselves. We are to bear our crosses and to follow in his footsteps. But secondly, we see that we are a holy sacrifice. We, Paul appeals us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. We are a holy sacrifice. What does that mean? God did not just save us. Jesus did not just redeem us from the power, sorry, from, the, from hell. He didn't just die to rescue us from hell. He didn't just die to rescue us from the penalty of sin. He died to rescue us from the power of sin. And as we continue to live our lives out for his glory, we're not just living sacrifices, but we are holy sacrifices. That means that we are set apart from our sin. We are reserved. God has chosen us for himself. We are set apart for his service, and we are dedicated to God. We are separated from sin. We are not to be like the prince and to look at the pauper and to say, I want to be like them. We're not to look at the world and say, I want to be like them. We have a high position and a privilege in Christ. We're a living sacrifice. We're a holy sacrifice. But thirdly, we see not only are we living and not only are we holy, but we are acceptable to God. We're acceptable to God. We are a living sacrifice, we're a holy sacrifice, and we are a pleasing sacrifice. This word, acceptable, it's also found in verse 2. What the will of God is explained as being acceptable, good and acceptable and perfect. We're a pleasing sacrifice. This is reminiscent of the the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. And as the animal was sacrificed, a sweet aroma was lifted up into the sky and it was called a sweet aroma to God. It was a sacrifice that was pleasing and was acceptable to him. Everything that we have to give, God does not need anything from us. I spent time this morning detailing with our congregation where we've come from. I thanked all of them for their commitment and their leadership and their service and their gifts of finances to our church over the last six months. And I thanked them and I praised them for their involvement. But I also made it clear at the same time, God does not need your money. God does not need your gifts. God does not need your leadership. Why? Because he has everything he needs in Christ. And we have everything we need in Christ. Yet in his sovereignty, in his providence, God has arranged, God has determined that the church 
and the mission that we have in the world would be accomplished through the ordinary means of his people and their gifts and their sacrifices and even their finances. And the only reason that our sacrifice is acceptable to God is because Christ was the ultimate sacrifice that, God, that was acceptable to God. So how does, what does Paul do? The first thing that he wants us to see is the shape of our worship. The shape of our worship is, has, it has a distinct shape. It is cruciform. We're reminded of the cross. Sacrifice. We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice to God. And this is our spiritual worship accepted by him, not because of who we are, not because we are good, not because we are holy, but because of the finished work of Christ and because we have been declared to be righteous if we are in him. But the second thing that Paul wants us to see in this text is that the world seeks to misshape our worship. Worship has a distinct shape, but we must understand that the world is working against us and they're trying to change our shape. Verse 2, the beginning says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, Again, we live in this world and we're not to live. We live in this world, but we are not of the world. Um, When Jesus ascended into heaven, he left us here for a purpose and for a reason. He could have taken us with him. I can imagine the disciples on the ground when Jesus ascended on high, greatly saddened with his departure. Because they wanted to be with him. I can imagine Peter as bold as he was. He wanted to be wherever Jesus was. Jesus stepped on the water. Peter wanted to be there. Jesus was in the the court being falsely tried. Peter wanted to be as close to him as possible. But Jesus left us here for a purpose. And before he left, he gave us the great commission. To go and to make disciples of all nations. So we in a sense, are here by necessity. In order to make disciples of the world, we have to be in the world. But while we're here, there exists a strong temptation for you and for me to be like the world. There's a temptation to be like this prince, to look over the walls of our luxurious castle, right? There's a temptation to look over the walls of the, everything that we have in Christ, the, the beauty of our salvation, The glory of being a part of one of God's churches in the world on mission. There's a temptation for us to take those things for granted and to look down on the world and to think not just, hey, they need to be saved, but hey, their life looks a little easier than mine. Um, And we tend to pattern our lives after the secular world rather than our Savior. And this makes no sense. Again, if you have been redeemed by Christ, if you are in Christ, you have the greatest treasure in all of the world. You are a, pity, a people to be, um, you, you have a wonderful life. You've been redeemed from the misery of not knowing Christ. Why would we ever look back? But Paul wants us to know that there is a pull There's a natural pull for each of us to be drawn back into the world. And this can happen in various ways. And we have to understand that there is a war for your soul. We have to acknowledge that. The world is trying to shape us. 
The shape of our worship is cruciform. It's the cross. But the world keeps telling us, no, you don't need a cross. The world shapes us and forms us. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we are caught up in a spiritual war. Whatever you read, whatever you watch, you're being shaped, you're being formed. Books, movies. I can't even watch commercials anymore with my kids because they have an agenda. An ideology has hijacked commercials and is trying to shape and form my children's minds. Whether it's Instagram or Facebook feeds or the lyrics to the words that you listen to. Everything in this world, even secular ideologies, good and bad ones, far right and far left, they're all trying to grasp our hearts and to shape our minds and they're competing for our worship. Where Our primary identity here should be a follower of Christ on mission in the world. So we have to acknowledge that there is a war for our souls. We also have to realize that the world has an agenda. The world has an agenda. There is no neutrality in a war. It's one side against the other, and they will do anything to destroy you. And we must understand, as John 15, verses 18 through 19 reminds us, that the world hates Christ, and it only loves its own. In fact, I'm going to read that. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. Jesus told his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. As the world looks at you as a Christian, as you stand out, as you stand against all of their values, their end game is total control. They want total control. The enemy wants total control of your life, total control of your mind, total control of your affections, and total control of your heart. So we need to acknowledge that there's a war for our soul. We need to realize that there, there's an agenda, that there's no neutrality, and we also need to have a wartime mentality. We need to fight the worldly system, and we need to flee from it. Do not be conformed to this world is a very strong imperative. Do not be conformed to this world. We're to work hard to make sure that our minds and our hearts are being, and our lives are being shaped and formed by God's word and by the gospel and by the church. First Peter 1.13 Therefore prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter 5 verse 8 reminds us again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Again, we are not to be conformed to the shape of the world. We are to be conformed to Christ, and we are to resist the world's influence. We need to maintain our cruciform shape. The world is always trying to misshape us, to remold us, to shape us and fashion us according to their system, their system which is contrary to God's word. 
They may pressure us. They may pull us. They may twist us. They may manipulate us. They may intimidate us. They may force us. But we need to be resilient and we must be, in the end, unfashionable. We should not look like the world. We are called to be different. We are called to suffer. We are called to stand out. We are called to be salt. We are called to be light. We are called to be a city on a hill. And when we give in to the world's system, when we spend our life being influenced by the world's system and becoming like the world, we have, ha- we have fashioned ourselves a more comfortable cross that costs us nothing. And this kind of Christianity, as J.C. Ryle once said, is worth nothing. We must crucify ourselves to the world and to our sinful desires. So we've seen that the, our worship has a distinct shape. The world is always out there trying to seek to misshape our worship. And thirdly, we see that we must continually reshape our worship. We must continually seek to reshape our worship to be conformed to God's word. The end of verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, and here's the positive command, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, if the world is continually trying to influence us, to force us into their mold, to shape and form our hearts and our minds and our affections toward worldliness, we must be regularly self-assessing, individually and corporately. We must be checking our shape. We must be reforming always in order to conform to the image of Christ. Again, D.L. Moody said, it's not the ship in the water that sinks the ship, it's the water in the ship. So how do we do this? How do we make sure that we are only being formed by God's word? How do we safeguard against being conformed to this world? Paul makes it clear in this command. Be transformed. Be transformed. Again, this is an interesting um, uh, command because it's passive. It's something that happens to you. Yet at the same time, Paul is telling us that we need to go do it. So how can we go do something that is passive? How can we do this? Um, and that's an interesting question. Um, Paul continues on by reminding us, be transformed by renewing your mind. Be transformed is the goal. How do you do it? It's by renewing your mind. Colossians 3.2 says to set your mind on the things above, not the things below. 2 Corinthians 4. 18 says the things which are seen are temporal and the things which are not seen are eternal. So in other words, what Paul's saying is we need to be transformed. That's something that God does in our life. That's something that the Holy Spirit does. But how do we do that? By renewing our mind. So in other words, I want you to think of it like this. Um, Imagine that you are a sailboat. Okay? You don't control the wind but you need to put yourself in the way of the wind, in the way it's already blowing. Same way if you're in a boat 
in a river. You want to put yourself in the way of the current of the way that it's going. There are ordinary means of grace that God uses to transform us passively, but we actively renew our minds by putting ourselves in the way of those sacred channels. And those sacred channels are very ordinary things. Things like reading our Bible. Things like praying. Things like going to church and worshiping with your brothers and sisters. And singing the gospel with them. And hearing the gospel preached. And preaching the gospel to our children. And these are things that we do individually at our homes. We should all be reading through the Bible in a year. We should all be praying to God on our own individually. We should be reading through the Bible as families and praying to the Lord as families. And we should be gathering together week in and week out as the family of God to hear God's word preached, to hear his word read, to sing his word, and to pray together with our brothers and sisters. And we believe that when we do this, that God is transforming us and that these are the ordinary means that he uses to transform us. Faith helps us look up, look out, look forward, look outside of ourselves, look above this world and see that there is fullness of joy, endless delights, complete satisfaction, pleasures forevermore, more glory to be seen and savored in Christ than in all of the world. There's nothing in the world that can bring us that kind of satisfaction that we find in the gospel. One poet said, Leave me, O love, which reaches but to dust, and thou, my mind, aspire to higher things. Grow rich in that which never taketh rust, whatever fades but fading pleasure brings. Whatever fades but fading pleasure brings. This world may bring temporary joys, may bring temporary hopes, temporary happiness, but in the end we know that these things will disappear. Only the gospel, only transforming our mind, only living for Christ as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, will we find this kind of joy that lasts forever. And if we do, if we are faithful to be transformed, if we are faithful to renew our minds, Paul says that we can discern what the will of God is. We can discern what the will of God is. At the end it says, so that, this is the goal, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, I look across this room, it's a new year, we have people here of all ages, we have a multi-generational crowd here, we have young people, we have older people, it's the beginning of a new year. A lot of us are wondering, what is God going to do this year? What is God's will for my life this year? What is God's will for the church this year? And if we are faithful to live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, if we are faithful to transform our minds and renew them, then we will be able to discern what his will is, and his will is everything that is good and acceptable and perfect. Good simply means something that is morally good. It's righteous. It's set apart. You remember God in the Old Testament, after every day he created the world, he said that it was good. Acceptable, again, we already covered this, but it means that it is pleasing to the Lord, that it brings glory to Him. Perfect has the idea that it helps us mature into Christ likeness. 
And it helps others mature into Christ-likeness. So as we live our lives this year, as we commit to being living sacrifices individually and corporately, as we commit to being transformed by the ordinary means of grace week in and week out, day in and day out of this new year, we will be able to discern what the will of God is. And before you do anything, you should always ask these questions. If, if it's a gray area, if you're confused whether it's right or wrong, I know there's a lot of things like that in this world, and I know that there's, there's grace and there's mercy in the gray, but at the same time, we need to ask ourselves before we do anything, is this good? Is this acceptable? Is this perfect? So as we consider the fact that we are children of the Most High God, that we are royal sons and daughters, redeemed by the Eternal King, adopted by Him, How foolish is it of us to look outside into the world and to want to be like them and to be envious of them. It would be utterly tragic to trade the eternal riches of your salvation for the passing pleasures of this world. You will eventually have to come to grips with the shape of Christian worship and embrace the rugged cross yourself. Again, we live in a secular world. Here in New Hampshire, you live in one of the most secular, unchurched parts of the country. If you are going to live for Christ, it's going to cost you. It should cost you. So in one way or another, as you live for Christ, there's going to be joy, there's going to be peace, there's going to be hope, there's going to be satisfaction and fulfillment, but know that there will be suffering. It will come at a cost, but that cost is worth it. Because as we live for Christ, we are drawing all men to him and proclaiming Christ. And that is our prayer, and that's my prayer for you, that you would pick up your cross and that you would live for Christ I'll read it one more time, and then I'll pray. Just these two verses. Let me just read it. Just as a prayer to God, and as a, as a, really as a, a rallying point for this new year. This is what we're all called to individually. This is what we're all called to corporately, as a church, as churches in this area. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you again for the privilege that we have to sit under your word. Lord, I thank you for this passage and this appeal and this call, Lord, to each of us tonight at the beginning of this new year, to live our lives against the grain of this world. Lord, the shape of our lives should be radically different than the world. The world wants us to live for ourselves. The world says that there is no truth. The world says that there is no consequences. The world says that there is no God. That we are not accountable to anyone. That there is nothing out there beyond what we can see and touch and feel. Lord, we know that that's not true. We know that's a lie that goes all the way back to the beginning of the garden when when Satan deceived Adam and Eve into thinking that you were not good. The world deceives us into thinking that you are not real. So, Father, I pray for each and every individual in this church, in this building tonight, that you would go before them this year, that you would help them to 
be a living sacrifice, to be who they are because of the mercy that you have lavished upon them, that they would live their lives as a living sacrifice, that they would pick up their cross, crucify themselves to this world and live for you, that they would not be conformed to this world, but that they would continually be renewed by your word, by the gospel, by Christ, by the ordinary means given here at this church, and that they would be able to discern what your will is for them, and that, they, that you would use them in the lives of unbelieving family members, unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving co-workers in this community, that you would use them to reach them with the gospel, Lord, that you would use us, that you would open up eyes and ears, that you would transform hearts. This is our desire. We ask that you would use us in this. We ask all this in your son's name, for his glory. Amen.